0: In this episode we talked to Ben Betwick lynch he is a UK-born legal practitioner and during his travels in Botswana he got involved in fighting legal cases. Now he is based in Windhoek and worked as a consultant for the Legal Assistance Centre, which is a donor-based law firm. He is mainly fighting cases for the SEN communities and his expertise is on land rights and environmental conflicts. One of the cases he's busy with for a long time is the Haikum Sand People, a subgroup of Bushmen who used to live on the land which is now Etosha National Park. The Haikum were forcibly removed from the park in 1954, which ended their hunter-gatherer lifestyle tragically and forced them to become landless farm laborers. Ben also works on cases with the Jutkoum Sand People in the north, in Nainai, and the ongoing trouble at its borders with the illegal settlement, illegal fencing, illegal grazing in that area. Welcome Ben!
1: I hope to get a better understanding what you are doing with the communities and uh, the work for the Legal Assistance Center. So tell us about your background and how you ended up in Namibia.
2: Yeah, it's, it wasn't my plan. Yeah, back in 2005, I was working for the education in the UK and I had a four months off and I came to Namibia as a volunteer from the Department for Education, who in fact would have been my director, working on education and vocational training projects in Chumkwe. So he kind of grabbed a hold of me and uh, took me to Chumkwe. So it was never my plan to work with the San, but that's how it started. Uh, and Then I went off to Botswana for four or five months, but uh, I'd already planned to sort of uh, not was disenchanted with London, didn't go back to my job, so I ended up volunteering for a year in Chimkwe at uh, working with the Nyaranau Conservancy in uh, Chimkwe Junior Secondary School teaching. I'd done some teaching before as well, and teaching in Krufontein at uh, uh, Shamalindi Primary School. Then I did go back to the UK, and basically as soon as I landed, I got a job offer from WIMSA, which, as you know, is the, uh, or was the working group of Indigenous minorities uh, in Southern Africa. So Mm -hmm. that was in 2006, and it was sort of a semi-voluntary. They basically said, well, it's an interesting job. We'll pay your accommodation, uh, a stipend for a flat and um, give you a bit of spending money. So I ended up doing that for a year, uh, and then sort of became an Namibia program manager. And things went a little bit bad to worse at the time in Wimsa and the director left, and I ended up sort of co-managing Wimsa with a Kenyan colleague, uh, and eventually becoming acting director up to two thousand and ten. So by that, I was by that point, I was yeah, waist deep in issues, I guess.
1: You didn't miss London,
2: not really. No, I mean, yeah, at times, but um, but it was interesting work. I mean, it was a—I would say it was a full-on job. I'm not sure that motivated to work that hard again. Not that I didn't make mistakes, nor the rest of it. I I made plenty, but um, but no, it was it was a very busy time, but it was a really interesting time, and obviously, you know. As much as I tried to do, I was also learning all the time. You know, it was great from that point of view. So much going on, work on education issues, human rights issues, land issues, doing a bit of work in Botswana. Um, And, of course, all the politics of WIMSA as an organization and politics within the SAN, and relations with government and so on. So they were WIMSA's kind of, uh, you know, legal advisors for most issues or at least the issues within Namibia. So we were already working together probably from 2006. Uh, 2010, I left the movie, went to my master's and kind of said I'd never come back. And uh, I did some other work. And in 2012, uh, LAC contacted me and, and asked if I'd be interested in just popping back for a couple of months uh, to, to help them out with some SAN-related court cases. And uh, I did that. I got involved in some other things, uh, yeah, and that kind of carried on each year until I ended up being back here at the end of two thousand and fourteen. So I was working on and off for LAC, but I already had that relationship since two thousand
1: and six. Yes, so they keep they kept on recruiting you from overseas until you, you stayed.
2: Yeah, well, I hung around in the region a bit. I was in South Africa for a bit, and then I, I worked with some San issues in Zimbabwe as well. Wow. But it was a lot of bouncing around. And um, I mean, the Zimbabwe stuff was something I'd wanted to do for a long time. Uh, but it, it was sort of, uh, how can I say, not necessarily a job of sorts, but trying to get something going. Um,
1: what did you do there yeah. in Zimbabwe? I didn't, I didn't know that.
2: We ended up doing a report with the, in partnership with the government uh the university of Zimbabwe, and working with some local ngos but basically i I wanted you know for a while had had this idea which i still like to do actually in angola and zambia of of just doing a a sort of in-depth report in partnership with some institutions like the government or or whoever else to to kind of you know, it's not like I was going to move to Zimbabwe and work a lot on sand issues, but to make a foundation that other people could work off and also to broach the issue. You know, I think a lot of the time with governments, it's not, you know, the individuals we meet are not necessarily against working with sand communities, but it might appear that way on the kind of state level. But, you know, by by being there and working together, we can kind of open that door a little bit to make it easier for them to, to engage with these communities.
1: Yeah. Would you say that the Legal Assistance Center is something unique that Namibia has? So that should be in the neighboring countries maybe as well?
2: Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, like any NGO, LAC has its ups and downs. Um, what I always say to people here, look at what would have happened if it wasn't here. So, of course, there are some things that don't work out or that people don't, dis- don't agree with. That's fine. But, you know, if we look at what it's achieved and what would happen if those things hadn't been achieved, uh, then it, you see how important it is to this country. Um, and you, you do have similar organizations in South Africa. Um, you know, the history of, of LAC is entwined with um, the Legal Resource Center in South Africa, you know, and anti-apartheid activities, for example. Um, and you have a similar organisation in Botswana, but perhaps it's maybe not, not as con- contentious at times, I would say.
1: The Legal Assistance Centre is... It's,
2: it's basically a public interest law firm. So it takes up cases that are in the public interest that can set precedent, uh, that can challenge you know, the way administration in the country works, laws and policies, but can also add to laws and policies and so on. So it's really dealing with... Particularly with cases that will add to the sort of the common good or the good of communities or groups within the country. So you know, it, it also works on issues. It's been very active in the past on HIV/AIDS, um, LGBTI rights. You know, of course, like land issues, but not only for minorities and so on. Uh, political rights.
1: That's super interesting. And is there a specific team that you are dedicated to?
2: Yeah. So I'm. You know i'm not a full time employee i am still in and out but I, I work with Land environment and development unit, so lead as it's called um, and that's the one dealing obviously with uh conservancies with land issues uh, for the main part i've been most involved in this criminal case, which actually i mean l a c supported the Conservancy and traditional authority in yanyai uh to lodge this case with the police but the the case itself is a is a is a state prosecution so it's in the magistrates court so they're represented by the state and not by LAC but it, it's supported by LAC and parallel to that case there's a civil case in the high court which is going to appeal and this is about the illegal grazing in the Nyanya area and at the same time there there previously was a case in Majana uh conservancy to do with the legal fencing which is sort of i mean it's ongoing because although the ruling was in favor of the conservancy the ruling's not been fully implemented so trying to get that implementation is is kind of an ongoing concern um then there was also uh the etosha uh land claim the Atosha National Park case which is also going to appeal that was dismissed by the court but it will be going to appeal although that case I mean we can get into this if you want but it it, that part of the case is not actually for the land claim it's actually for the recognition of the HICOM applicants as a class uh, um, you know as a group who can be represented in the court uh, but unaffiliated in that case with the traditional authority of the HICOM, which is tricky, as it turns out.
1: And what do you hope the outcome to be for of that HICOM Etosha case?
2: I mean, I would say, you know, we'd, we'd go back to the, the good lawyer answer is, uh, you know, that's for the courts to decide uh, where things stand in this case. I mean, from my personal point of view, I'd say, I think everybody can agree that the way that Hicom were removed from that park, which was back in the 1950s under the previous government, um, under the apartheid regime, uh, the way they were removed was unfair, grossly unfair, and has had generational effects on many Hicom people. And, And although it was done by another government that had a completely pointed, you know, different point of view on so many things, different actions, but you as a government, you still remain, uh, you know, responsible
1: mm-hmm.
2: for the actions of a previous government. And I think there's been plenty of time, sadly, to have dealt with that issue in some form or another, and just not enough has been done. So it, I don't think it's up to somebody like me to say whether the high comms should actually get some rights over Atosha or land or whatever. But the mm-hmm. fact that they're so minimally involved in the running and the heritage of the park, you yeah. know, for me, it's, it's still a concern. And, and there's a, an issue, I think, for a lot of High Con with respect in there. It's not necessarily that everybody wants to like, yeah, there's a lot of different rumors about that court case. If you actually read what's in the yeah. claim, if you take away the issue of asking for land or compensation, you mm-hmm. know, equal to the land, the other things in the claim are really straightforward and they're all to do with recognition that those people live there generationally you know and were such an important part of, of the park um Absolutely.
1: so is that yeah. something in the running like uh, to, to become a people's park or is that too too far oh,
2: off i think that will probably be very far off And the Highcom also, you know, to be fair, they've changed as a people. Absolutely. Of course, everybody is changing, nobody's static. So it's not to say that they would adapt to living within the park. But the point is, you know, for the history of the park, for education, even for tourists going there, you know, to have some greater benefits from the running of the park, that would seem very logical to me.
0: Yes,
1: absolutely. So... You must have a fairly good understanding of what then the traditional land rights meant to the Bushmen. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about that, how the relationship was with land and land usage?
2: Sure. I mean, of course, it differs somewhat from group to group, but I can speak very generically. Uh, Of course, we would ideally have a sound person on this call who would better describe what happens in their community. (laughs) But I mean, I think one thing that kind of annoys me in a great fallacy of discussing a lot, a lot of these things in general, is is the use of the term nomadic. Yeah. And the term nomadic, I think, is with some people has a connotation that people were rootless. Uh, you know, it sort of negates the idea of land ownership. And you can go back to these colonial ideas of uh, of, of terra nullius, you know, the, the land belonged to no one, so we were able to come and take it. But, but simply, as you know, the sand didn't have those significant markers like fences and agricultural fields and livestock within certain boundaries that, that actually underpin the basis of most of our land law. Um, you know, across the world that underpins the basis of most of our land law. Um, so using the land in a non-intensive way where boundaries were understood between different families and different groups, but not specifically uh, marked you know, this This has obviously been really problematic. And so in the past, it's not that San people just wandered from place to place, of course, they had territories which were associated with families, uh, with different family groupings and then associated with the wider group. And there would be an understanding of exchange of resources between different families and their areas. And also between SAN groups and non-SAN groups, there were also, you know, there were, of course there was trade, uh, you know for meat for salt um, sand people often you know probably traded for things like metal quite often um, so I think that that relationship of, of ownership uh, of the resources has, has kind of largely been lost in, uh, in modern discussions about these things and they're sort of seen as somehow like drifting and living off the land in this like ethereal way when in fact it's it's a lot more real than that I mean if you went and crossed into a neighboring territory of a of a family from your group but a different territory and you killed an animal without permission and took meat, you'd be in serious trouble you know people would go there and ask permission and they'd share the resources like if you killed an animal maybe you'd give meat, or you'd give permission to the other family to come into your area for another resource that they wanted Um, so I think it's not that far off from our own land uses, but somehow it's been culturally shifted to to something else.
1: And so you say that there was a sense of ownership, but was there also like a hierarchical structure?
2: Again, I think it depends from group to group, but it seems like elders were consulted, but it wasn't necessarily, but but some of the groups were different, like the HICOM seems to have had, um, of course, a as you know, I should be saying quite but my, my uh, <laughs> my, my pretty bad. Yeah. They seem to have had some kind of leaders in terms of, you know, like a, an actual single leader in some cases. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure some of the other groups had that, but it, it seems more often than not, it was people were consulted as to their knowledge. So, you know, somebody who made the decisions about hunting might not be the same person who made the decisions about where to move for water
1: yeah and ownership of the land was mostly communal right not not really one person owning
2: no and and i mean it's a difficult concept isn't it because it it's not you know we you sort of buy a house and you have a wall in the garden it's all very straightforward or you have a field if you're a farmer with a (laughs) fence around it but but I think for most Sam, the concept of land ownership, is isn't there in the same way. It was a concept of like the loan or usage of resources in a given area, which were upon the land. But I don't think as far as I've understood it, that actual concept of the earth itself being under your ownership, you know, mm-hmm. it's not really there. It's yeah, like that's... you get to use the trees and the honey and the, the wild yeah. animals in a certain area that are under your jurisdiction, but yeah, yeah. a different concept.
1: Yeah. It's, and it's also difficult to, to obviously explain and to, to deal with this matter in a, yeah, in a sense for sure. other people to, to understand.
2: Sure. And so, just, just going back to what you were saying about communal ownership as well, you know, that that's a, a big challenge is the fact that although of late in the world, group rights are becoming a little bit more widely recognized, you know through various international law and some national law it, it, it's like we've lived in a in a kind of legal framework that has has been about mainly about individual rights and individual ownership yeah. so that whole concept of being a group and having like a common tenure over resources or over land is something that um yeah, yeah again was sort of ignored for a long time and was only fairly recently Sort of come back into play as as a possibility
1: well, that's a good thing that it's being that it's starting then so th- but the loose lines of of the of the land have obviously been an open invitation to many people, and it's actually up until today really a threat still to the land of uh, many sand groups. Let's maybe take the thescroix um, excuse my clicks as well as an example um because there you have had many cases right with uh, illegal fencing, illegal grazing, what's sort of happening there around Nainai? Nai?
2: yeah, I mean in Nyaya you just have this sort of continual attrition it, It's a very difficult situation because you know as you'll know, the Nyanya Conservancy is communal land, and that falls under authority the the conservancy who have a management plan and a committee and a, the traditional authority who get to grant access and usage rights to people who want to, those permissions in the area. And at the same time, you're, you have a town in the middle, which is growing steadily, I guess. Um, still small, but, but it definitely is growing. And within the town, that's a municipal area and anybody can come and settle there but but the resources within the town including employment are are very sparse so of course you know we already have a situation where people in the town are owning cattle which are going out and grazing within the communal area beyond the borders of the town they're collecting firewood Um, i mean there's definitely poaching going on Um, and then added to that you have neighboring areas where you have kind of expansionist farming in the north uh, in Kabango region, you also have uh, timber harvesting as well. And then you have these sort of uh, sort still reasonably pastoralist or farmer communities to the south who have, frankly, in many cases, overgrazed a lot of their areas and are kind of pushing for, for grazing land, especially during times of, of drought. So there's immense pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's pressure on, on the land from these different groups from within and from outside and, it, and it, it's, a running, it's kind of a running fight basically to, to try and keep control of that and of course the, the relationships are also very complex because it's not to say that just because somebody's from a different group and doing these things that they have a bad relationship with the community some of them do have a bad relationship with the community and some of them are definitely breaking the law in, in pretty bad ways. But others, you know, maybe have closer roots and beneficial relations. So, you know, it's not so black and white that we can walk in there and, and kind of draw a line.
1: No, of course not. So how do you mediate in these conflicts? Like maybe explain a little bit the process. So you're informed with with a sort of a conflict or an issue and then how do you how do you have to deal with this?
2: We haven't been doing a huge amount of mediation in a way, because mediation would sort of imply that you're coming to an agreement. It's more a process of warning people, not warning's the wrong word, but informing people. You yeah. know, on the one side as to their rights and as to how the law stands, and on the other side to where the boundaries are, you know, physically and in terms of the law. So there's been a a long process of, of giving information, of marking areas, uh, of having community meetings, of having meetings with other traditional authority leaders, of having meetings with people in government. Um, and, and it has to be, I, I mean, one of the reasons why I quite like doing this work is we're not actually, you know, in terms of the work with LAC, we're not trying to push for something that is different to what's already there. All we're doing is trying to implement or have the national law be implemented because if that national law was was adhered to most of these problems wouldn't really happen and, and you know my obvious ex- explanation to people is well you know if you don't like the law then you should go and petition your MP uh, or speak to the Ministry or and discuss it and see if you can resolve it in some way. But as it stands, if the laws there,
1: mm-hmm. choose
2: what we choose to apply or not.
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so you had recently a big case um, also in that area?
2: I guess it's locally maybe a big case, but we'll see what happens with it as we still haven't had an answer. Actually, it got delayed again till November. It's been going on for so long. I think probably in 2015, 14 maybe, end of 14, and into 15. We started, what, LAC was requested by the traditional authority and by the Nyong'i know, Conservancy, so it's a Genkwasi traditional authority. Um, this issue of illegal grazing that they were seeing a lot of cattle in the area and within the conservancy that didn't see members or the community at large. So we started looking into that And part of that's been, as I've said before, like activities. So um, getting the conservancy and the traditional authority to promote information to the community through radio, through meetings, through posters, you know, to provide guidance as to what people are and are not allowed to do. We've also made physical measures. So, for instance, I've gone round with guys from the conservancy with uh, paint and uh, walked borders of the town of the municipal area that I, I mentioned and mark those borders and we've also on roads put up signposts showing those borders so that people can't claim that they don't know you know where the town uh, ends and the conservancy begins and at, and at the same time we did investigations what we started doing I mean there's no real clear way of how you deal with uh, identifying illegal grazing so we, we, we basically went out on patrols and we looked for cattle and we take photos of those of the ear tags so, so cattle in Namibia they're registered they're, they're actually very good at registering cattle here with the veterinary services in the, within the Ministry of Agriculture and so the, the cattle get an ear tag fairly early on Uh, and it's got a unique identifying number on it. So we'd take pictures of those, we'd also take GPS readings of where we took those pictures, we'd count the number of cattle in the area, um, and and we'd make those records and, and into reports. And what we ended up doing later was filing charges against people who were, let's say, repeat offenders. Where we'd identified multiple instances or or higher numbers of cattle that were further from the town so kind of deeper into the conservancy where you couldn't say oh it's just 100 meters away or whatever these are cattle that were sort of four five six seven eight nine kilometers from town Um, and we yeah under the forest act we um, It's also a community forest area. So basically you could prosecute under the communal land reform act or under the forest act. And the forest act has uh, higher penalties. So we, uh, or, or the, the traditional authority of the conservancy, um, open cases against these people uh, with the police. And that's the court case we're dealing with five years later. I think there's a reluctance to investigate at first. We had problems about that. So it was very hard to get the case to the magistrate who who deal with the prosecution. Uh, I have to say the police in the end were very good, but it took a long time to get there. Probably took about a year for them to finalize the investigation, which is a really long time.
1: And it's difficult if you have moving cattle because, you know, then they're gone after a year, probably, or they're somewhere else.
2: Sure, which is what's happened to some extent that, you know, in a way that doesn't really matter because it's based on the evidence we had at the time. And then the crime has been committed then, you know, it, it doesn't sort of matter if the cattle's not really there anymore because it's not about the ongoing situation. It's a, a snapshot, as it were,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that at this and this time, this person owned cattle uh, uh, that were grazing illegally within the Conservancy. Five years is a long time for an issue like this. It's it's quite straightforward. Um, You know, they're either filed guilty or not guilty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, the level of, the the question will probably be whether, whether there's punishment and the level of punishment given. So, uh, we're on the home straight, I hope, but that doesn't mean that we'll get the result we're looking for. So, Mm -hmm. end of November, we have another hearing is probably what is the
1: result for looking for this.
2: so it, it would be a fine it could also be jail time but it would be a fine under the forest act um mm-hmm. and it won't be a you know you're talking about a couple of thousand or something it won't be a huge amount of money you know yeah. in the bigger scheme of things but the point is if you can set a precedent for this it, yeah. it becomes easier to uh, prosecute these issues in the future and it's just you know for me it's a matter of upholding the national law you can't just say like well it was okay that they did this because of x y and z you know yeah it's maybe a silly example it's like saying if somebody steals your tv you know but they were in a really bad situation (laughs) but you know what i mean it's still a crime
1: absolutely yeah and how how's the community um going about these events are they participating in any other way than just reporting to the police or
2: yeah i mean they they do take part they still seem fairly feisty about it uh and of course they've appeared as witnesses there is people like the chief and the previous chair of the conservancy and some of the uh conservancy staff as well have appeared as witnesses so they they are in the middle of this but um I mean, I can imagine it's also very disheartening
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, you know, we have the same situation in Chumquay West in the genre as well, that you, you sort of deal with one issue in, in this kind of area, you know, of illegal fencing or illegal grazing, and then you're straight on to the next. Mm-hmm. But there, there is no happy time where you can say, oh, it's going to be all right for a while now. It's peace it's in the north. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, an, it's a continual process and that attrition, that pressure, of course. I, I, I don't want to be, I, 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 you know, I wouldn't do this stuff if I didn't think that there wasn't a possibility of getting good results. So, of course, you might be able to have a situation where we establish people's rights and then those rights, or, or let me say they are there, but better establish or strengthen people's rights over tenure of the land and resources that it becomes harder to take advantage of that. But, mm-hmm. but the obvious truth is that the attempts to take advantage of that will not get less, they'll get more. Mm-hmm. Because resources get scarcer and populations get bigger and access to areas improves, yeah. uh, infrastructure improves. So, it's yeah. unfortunately um, there aren't many words of encouragement as to people having a peaceful future on this front sadly
1: these kind of long-term effects is it difficult to explain this
2: no i think they get it Uh, and i mean they most of them have been exposed to other areas neighboring so i think they understand what it is to to not have that um but it's also tough because people have such few resources and you of course, there are probably I'm not saying this is across the board at all, but there are probably instances where things are allowed to happen because there's a reward, you know, or a, a remuneration for that happening. And it's very hard. You know, it's easy to sit here and say, oh, well, they can't do this and they can't do that. They, should. But mm-hmm. it's like sitting in a village in the middle of nowhere and you're hungry, you know, and somebody Comes along and says, "Like, well, I can give you this if you just let me do that." You know, it's a it's a very different argument. We're very in our ivory towers, you know, here Absolutely. in winter and
1: um, I I was researching a little bit what you have been doing over the last years, and I found this article that you've been working with a special way of dealing with land issues, uh, sort of an artistic way uh, that you've been looking into mapping. It's not really a familiar way of, of, of dealing with these these issues, I, I suppose. Can you tell us a little bit about your findings there?
2: Sure. I mean, this was a new area for me as well. And so I, I can't claim any credit at all because actually in researching some of this stuff, I found that people have been doing what we've been doing since back in the 80s, even with the very first GPSs we used mm-hmm. uh, in um in Asia to, to map land rights, I think in Indonesia if I remember, or in Borneo, that was it. Um but but yeah obviously, you know, if we have court cases we need evidence and recording oral histories and resources and the way people moved and used areas and the names of places. These are all important things if you're arguing over land rights and 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 rights over natural resources. But I think a big part of it is also, you know, in an ideal world, we, we, we always deal with these issues, like I, I'd call it firefighting. You know, something happens and then we're running to catch up. Yeah. Uh, and that's obviously, I mean, there's reasons why that happens because of lack of resources, basically. Uh, in a better time, in a better place, we would... Have that information already within communities, like communities would be holders of that knowledge and it would be accessible. And in that kind of situation, it would be a lot harder to challenge or to take advantage of of the situation of of land or resources in a given area. Um, And I think mappings is a massive part of that, being able to record, you know, especially as we have elders who are, you know, people who live the old life are, are dying off at quite a rate. So, to be able to record that history and, and the roots of communities, that even where things haven't happened, I mean, they'll probably happen eventually. Mapping is a great way of, of recording all of that and having a sense of identity and a sense of, of why that attachment to the land is there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's also a great community uh, event, probably, to, to redraw that and to bring awareness into the community itself about, about their rights and their, their boundaries
2: definitely yes and i think communities really enjoy doing it it's not always the case for the elders have told all the stories about what they used to do and where they used to go and why they know certain things exist in that area uh-huh. um and of course it's also been important in the um, and a long ago lac worked with the community and with some organizations in botswana you know to document some of that traditional knowledge of being in the area and some of the elders could show how uh, you know even areas that they don't access anymore they understood what trees were there you know major landmarks what they had been using so it shows that kind of generational existence in an area
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely so in Namibia there's actually a couple of different land types that uh, the sound communities have been resettled or given there's a communal, there's a resettlement farms and...
2: Well, you have commercial land as well and then you have, uh, I mean, you have state land in terms of protected areas. And of course, in Namibia, we have the uh, the situation of Poboite National Park where you have people actually living within the park.
1: How, how is it working out with them living in the park?
2: Yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> it's really difficult.
1: What are What are the difficulties there?
2: I think a lot of people... I mean, I can only talk to the Quay, there are other communities within the, in the park, but the majority of Quay, and those are people I've worked with. Uh, and I can say that most of them seem to support having the National Park there, and they feel that attachment to the wildlife uh, and to the area. So it's not that they want it commercialized or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of difficult to limit, you know, the the sort of Normal development economic development of of people and their access to to businesses and so on, and being able to to have certain economic activities you know, and there's not really any compensation for that in particular there's quite limited development in the area, of course, they have some trophy hunting contracts and they 've got some tourism contracts coming up, but if you think about the income kind of per person in the area that that stuff generates i mean it's not that it's bad, you know it's good but it's it, it's not very much per person in the area but on the other hand you're restricted from so many issues in terms of owning livestock in terms of the farm you can do in even in terms of personal mobility in terms of physically accessing areas in terms mm-hmm. of accessing natural resources those limitations are there and I, i'm not disagreeing with all those limitations I mean if you agree that the park has to exist or should exist then there's also certain issues of, of park management that, that need to go on there which will you know mean that some areas are going to be called wildlife areas and you can't have people wandering around personally you don't have a problem with that but where you're asking people to sacrifice for that they should be compensated
1: Yeah, is it still having um, positive outcomes on poaching and those kind of topics?
2: Yeah, I mean Namibia has not been too bad for poaching anyway. As far as I understand it, the community work quite well with the anti-poaching units to some degree, but there's maybe a feeling that... I I mean the problem is that Kirimashan, the the entity that's in the area, which is Majority Quay, that the community organization in the area, which uh, they can't have a conservancy because it's a national park, but, you know, is akin to a, a conservancy um, you know, organization, association within the park. Uh, and the people of Mashan and a lot of the older people within the park used to be really active members of, of uh, being guardians of wildlife and being part of anti-poaching activities and so on. And now this job's been very much removed uh, to the purview of the army, the police and the Ministry of Environment, Forestry and Tourism. I mean, the poaching there is not too bad. You obviously have the issues because of the border with Zambia and Angola and so on. Um, it's quite porous. But but considering that, it's not been too bad. And as I say, the community, I think, do their best to prevent these things happening. But at the same time, there's kind of... Uh, you know a a dislocation of the community away from that role and i think you can't have that you have to if you're going to have people living within the park you know they have to be a part of the management and the protection of that place there's an ownership issue there of course
1: many many things to tackle um many questions i I guess all day (laughs) Yeah, I really admire what you're doing. It must be at times not really not easy to, um, you know, to stay positive because there's so much going on. How, how do you stay positive?
2: Uh, I'm pretty optimistic about what's happened. I mean, I also, you know, just to be horribly frank, it, it's not like I come in and out of areas. I don't have to experience all these things personally. So when you work with people who do, you know what I mean? It's a, you you can't really take it all on the chin because they have to take it all on the yeah. um, you know, I get, I, get to, I get to dissociate myself from it. Um, so
1: yeah.
2: sadly, it's a lot easier in that way. There's so much room for improvement in Namibia, but Namibia is actually not, not particularly awful in this. I mean, in terms of devolution of land rights, in terms of supporting these communities, yeah. although a lot of things aren't going right, there's also not a load of things going wrong a lot of the time. You yeah. know what I mean? Compared with other countries in Africa, where you see sort of, you know, even the issue of of, of physical violence here is is yeah. really extremely limited.
1: Uh, you can still keep the overview in a way. Um, it's little. It's an, as you said, it's a nice way to say it. It's just firefighting, extinguishing little fires here and there. Uh, but I think that's a very good start to put pressure and to keep on repeating the the law. Well definitely show, show its result afterwards, after time.
2: No, definitely. And I mean, I, I, yeah, not to say that that means things are okay here, but frankly, I also have some colleagues who work in Western Central Africa. And, you know, in comparison, my job is extremely lightweight in <laughs> some ways. Uh, yeah, they're dealing with situations that I've never had to really come across. Um, so I, I have to keep that in mind. And yeah. as much as you're familiar with Nyai Nyai and as much as there's problems there, also if you look at the fact that, okay, beyond those problems though, there are Indigenous people there who actually have, you know, a reasonable basis for their land rights and resource rights in the area and have a, a reasonable amount of freedom in exercising those. I mean... Sadly, that is an unusual and an amazing thing in today's world.
1: That's true. I would say that's a beautiful note to end uh, this inspiring talk. Thank you so, so much for your time and your knowledge uh, that you shared here today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure.
1: Thank you, Ben. Thank you so, so much. Thank you.
0: This was Our Common Ancestors. If you liked the podcast episode, know that we will keep on sharing audio stories you should hear. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app.